starting off with the two basic axioms, just by way of review. The first is that the Bible is a human book. The second is it's a divine book. There's certain things that we can develop logically from both propositions. The fact that it is a human book and also a divine book are self-evident axioms. So as we develop these principles, they lead us into understanding these principles or or, uh, unpacking these principles of hermeneutics. Okay, so the fifth principle is that each biblical writing took on the nature of a specific literary form. Now, this is uh, important. The term, the technical term for literary form is genre, a French word, G-E-N-R-E, and there are many different genres of literature. You have um, legal literature, you have poetry, uh, historical narrative. I would put the Gospels as a distinct literary genre. They're not biography. They're not history. They're distinct in and of themselves. One controversial area is that you will read people who put books like Daniel, Zechariah, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Revelation as apocalyptic literature as a genre. I don't agree with that. I think that apocalyptic is a genre you find in non-biblical religious literature. And what has happened with scholars is they're treating the Bible... Uh, as if it's the same as these non-inspired books. The non-inspired books have characteristics that are clearly distinct from these inspired books. I would uh, categorize them as prophetic, that there are certain characteristics of biblically prophetic books, and they're not the same as, not the same as apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic literature. They are distinct. But it's important to understand uh, the nature of, of different books because you don't interpret language the same. For example, if you read a word in the context of a Shakespearean sonnet, you know just because you're reading a Shakespearean sonnet that it's not going to have the same narrow, precise meaning that the same word would have in the middle of a legal contract. And so context or the type of, and the type of literature is important for helping us understand that there are some distinctions. When you read uh, poetry, for example, words often are chosen for different reasons and they don't have as narrow or precise a range of meaning as they do in, in other kinds of, um, of literature, but we have to recognize too that not that that parts of narrative literature are also written in poetry. If you look, if you have a New American Standard or NIV, they will often break out. Uh, the, the you read in Isaiah, Jeremiah, many of those chapters are written in an indentation form, indicating that they're poetry in Hebrew. So that's that's very important to understand those uh, those ideas. Sixth principle is that each biblical writing was understood by its initial readers in accordance with basic principles of logic and communication. The initial readers understood what Paul was saying. For example, if you were a Thessalonian 
and you received Paul's first letter uh, some four, five, six months after he had visited, you would read it as you would read any other letter from any other visitor who had come and written back. You wouldn't be looking for uh, hidden meanings that were not related to the literal meaning of the text. So they, they, communication always followed the same basic principles of logic and communication in order to understand what was written. Now here's a list of six questions that you should ask when you're studying a passage in relation to understanding the meaning of the text. The first is, what did the words convey in the grammar of the original readers? Now, that's a problem for many of you and for many Bible students because they don't know the grammar of Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. There are a number of study tools that are available that can help people with this, but it still need, you still need to spend some time uh, learning the language, or at least the alphabet. That helps a good bit in understanding. At least you can read what the words are in some of these tools. But there are basic, simple principles of grammar that can be understood. I've been reading and studying Greek, and I've taught Greek, and I've been through several Greek grammars, and I am consistently, every year, I come across something that I haven't discovered before. So it's a constant uh, process of growth and understanding. But the words communicated something to that original audience, and so we have to go back and understand how these words were used uh, in the first century. How words were used in the first century is not necessarily how they were used in the first century before Christ. It's not how they were used in the fifth century B.C., which was in the heyday of, of Greek culture. Classical Greek may have used similar idioms that just survived. For example, I used the example uh, earlier from Shakespeare, from Hamlet, the phrase being hoist on your own petard has the same meaning today as it did in Elizabethan English. But Elizabethan English is very different from modern 21st century American English. But American English, the, the meaning has simply survived down through the ages. But, it, but if you knew nothing about Elizabethan English and you knew nothing about Hamlet, nothing about Shakespeare, and all you knew was 20th or 21st century English, you would, could still understand the meaning of that idiom because it's survived and been stable through the last four or 500 years. The reason I say that is because every now and then you might hear or read of a statement that uh, something in the New Testament is, is reminiscent of or is similar to a classical Greek idiom. It might be, but it has the same meaning that has survived, and it is no longer a classical Greek idiom in the New Testament. It's a Koine Greek idiom that has simply survived. So you don't need to know classical Greek in order to understand anything in the Greek New Testament. It may shed some light on some things in terms of the history of the usage or the history of the words, but it's not necessary for understand the, understanding the meaning. The words that the Apostle Paul used and the idioms that he used and the other writers of the New Testament used in the first century were words that could be understood by the average common, that's what koine means, common person of the day. 
They didn't have to understand anything about what those terms meant in classical Greek in order to understand their meaning in the Greek New Testament. That meaning had survived. So we have to understand what the words indicate, what they conveyed in the grammar of the original readers. Second, what was being conveyed by those words to the initial reader. So we have to understand the grammar because certain things are, are, are communicated through the grammar and then other things are communicated just by the meaning of the words themselves. Third question, how did the cultural setting influence and affect what was written? For example, you should be continuing to work through the exercises in the workbook, and yes, we will get to them eventually, but related to understanding Habakkuk. Habakkuk's an Old Testament book. Habakkuk was a prophet who lived prior to the Babylonian invasion in the late part of the 6th century B.C. in Judea. And so it's important to understand something about the culture of his background as well as the culture of the Babylonians or the Chaldeans as they're described in Habakkuk. So we need to understand the cultural setting. Fourth, what's the meaning of the words in their context uh, in terms of how a word is used in its immediate context? Sometimes there are words that um, the same word is used three or four times in the same context but with different meanings. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 16 is a classic example for the Greek word pneuma. It's used with at least four different meanings. It refers to the human spirit, the Holy Spirit. It refers to just thinking in general or an attitude. Those are three of the meanings uh, that are listed there, and it refers to a mindset. So those are just ways in which the term uh, terms can use. So you have to understand that that immediate context in each sentence or in each phrase. Fifth, addressing the question in what literary form is the material written and how does that affect what is said. Now, a word of warning here in in contemporary hermeneutics, some uh, a trend has developed around genre, making genre uh, an ultimate determinative as to meaning. And that is not the case. It's helpful. It gives us a context. But just because it's in a certain genre doesn't give us the specific meaning within the context. And then last, how do the principles of logic and normal communication affect the meaning? A sentence, if you've ever studied logic, what you learn is that that grammar is inherently logical and the principles of logic are uh, correlated to principles of grammar. Because when we make a statement, especially a compound statement, compound sentence, or several compound sentences strung together, there is a logical order to those sentences for it to communicate uh, its meaning. And so logic and grammar are... are um, are related very closely to one another, and that's how meaning is communicated. So these are just six basic questions, six basic things that should be addressed when we uh, read anything. And most of the time when you're just reading in English, you're probably deciphering these things without conscientiously thinking about them because that's your first language. What's great about Bible study is it causes you, especially when you're studying in, in Greek or Hebrew, it forces 
you to slow down and to think about what's going on in the passage and looking at the logic and the structure of the passage to get the meaning because so often we assume things that may or may not be in evidence. So by slowing down, it forces us to think precisely. And that's one reason that it's good for Bible students to uh, to diagram the sentences. When I took second year, third year Greek, we had to diagram every sentence in the Greek. That drove some students crazy because they couldn't even diagram a simple sentence in English, much less in Greek. But it, what happens when you learn that process of diagramming, and I've got a simpler thing that I use called phrasing, it helps you lay out the logical structure of a sentence or a paragraph so that you can specifically and precisely follow the flow of thought in the mind of the, of the author. Okay, what I've looked at so far is that uh, the principle of the Bible, uh, the axiom of a Bible as a human book. Now we're going to look at some principles briefly of the Bible as a divine book, that the Bible has a divine author, and that is God the Holy Spirit. I want to put a couple of passages up here for us to look at. First of all, 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly uh, equipped for every good work. Now, if I click on this little button here, I can open up a Greek interlinear. The reason I'm doing this here is to show that this whole whole phrase is given by inspiration of God translates one Greek word. And that Greek word is, I'm going to expand this a little bit. That one Greek word is theopneustos. It's a compound word. Theos is the word for God. Pneuma is the word for spirit or breath. Neustos comes from pneuma, so it's talking about God breathed literally. So it's not the idea of inspiration. Inspiration is not really the best English word because we often think of a writer or an author or somebody who's inventive and creative as being inspired. That's not what this is talking about in the normal use of the word inspired. The English word inspired comes from a root spired or spiration, which is breathing, and breathing something in. But this is talking about God breathing something out. God is breathing something out, as it were. Uh, the ideas, the words are coming from the source of God, being breathed out and through the mind and the pen of the human author. So God is breathing it out and giving it to us. So its source is in God, not in man. The ultimate source of Scripture, therefore, is divine and not human. God is using human authors to record the Scriptures so that all Scripture, not just some Scripture, but all Scripture is breathed out 
uh, by God and has its source in God. It doesn't become the Word of God when we experience it. That's a neo-Orthodox uh, concept. It is the Word of God because it comes from the source of God. Now, the second verse I want to look at is Second Peter one twenty-one, where Peter says, or one twenty and twenty-one, knowing this first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. What he means by that is that it didn't have its meaning determined by a the private or individual author. Uh, no prophecy of Scripture uh, is of any individual. Hideous here is where we get our word idiot. Idiot. It has to do with the individual. It's not. It doesn't have an origin. Its origin in any individual interpretation. The word here for interpretation is epilusis, which in the in the Greek has the idea of the act or process of explaining something. So that the meaning of scripture is not dependent upon an individual interpretation. It has its ultimate meaning uh, from the mind or from the source of God. And he explains this then in verse 21 by saying, For prophecy never came in, never came by the will of man. And the word there, uh, the, the genitive there would indicate a genitive of source, that it doesn't originate from the will of man, it doesn't have its origin in man, but these holy men of God, these men who were set apart by God, spoke by being moved, or as they were moved, by the Holy Spirit. Now, this particular word for being moved by the Holy Spirit is a term that implies that they had no participation in the act of movement. It's a word that was often used to describe sailing ships who were moved across the water by the wind. Nothing is dependent upon the volition of the sailing vessel for the movement. It's it's totally passive to the movement of the wind. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who is doing all of the acting, and the writers of Scripture are simply receiving that action. That's another way of describing that act of God breathing in Second uh, Timothy uh, 3.16. So the writers of Scripture recorded what God the Holy Spirit uh, intended them to record, and that every aspect of God's revelation, therefore, is uh, has a divine author and has divine authority behind it. One of the important things that I learned years ago, I always thought was fascinating, was to study how Jesus used the Old Testament. When you read through the uh, Gospels, Jesus uses the Old Testament as if it has absolute authority. He treats the Old Testament as the very word of God. He doesn't treat it as the words of men about God. Uh, it's not. He doesn't treat the Old Testament as a record of divine inspiration, but that it is individually inspired by God. He uses 
the phrase, it is written as an absolute statement uh, five times, for example, in the book of Matthew, which we're studying on Sunday mornings. He follows it each time by quotations from Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and Zechariah, indicating his view that th- these these books had absolute divine authority. In many places, he quotes from Old Testament passages, quotes from Deuteronomy, uh, from Leviticus, from Psalms, uh, and... Um, when he does so, he treats those uh, writings as being the very word of God. So this tells us that Jesus' view of the Old Testament, including his quotations of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, was that they, it had absolute authority, unquestioned authority, as coming uh, completely and totally uh, from God. Now back to our principles here. So we derive from that the fact that it is a divine book, several important principles. First of all, because the Bible's a divine book, it is inerrant. Now that means that when we approach the Scripture, we approach the Scripture with the assumption that it is without error, so that if we perceive a contradiction, we don't just gloss over it, but we understand that we have to work through a process of resolving that contradiction. And there are many things, many principles for doing that. But in contrast, there are, just watch the Discovery Channel or History Channel, you'll see people who, as soon as they see a contradiction, rather than thinking through a way of resolving the contradiction, they immediately say, see, the Bible has errors in it. Their assumption is the Bible is not a work of God, and apparent contradictions disprove that it is the Word of God. Where And unfortunately, what that does is ignore a vast amount of literature that has been written over the centuries showing how these apparent contradictions are not, in fact, contradictions. So we assume, as we come to the text, that the, the word is inerrant and that God has preserved it. Now, I understand that there's places where there are some discrepancies in the uh, copying tradition in Scripture that's a matter for textual criticism, but that does relate to a principle we've mentioned before, and I'll mention again, and that is that we have to make sure we have the scripture, the original statement before us, before we proceed with interpretation. But that's a totally different issue outside of the um, scope of this this class. Uh, second thing we understand is the Bible, being a divine book, is authoritative. It's authoritative for not only things related to uh, the spiritual life and salvation, but in everything that it, is, it addresses. A classic example of subterfuge in this area has to do with the decline of a seminary on the West Coast called Fuller Theological Seminary. Fuller Theological Seminary was founded in the early 50s or late 40s as a very sound evangelical school, they changed their doctrinal statement on inspiration and infallibility of Scripture in the early 60s, and they, their new statement read that the Word of God was authoritative in all areas, uh, in all matters of faith and practice. Now, what's wrong with that statement? Positively, there's nothing wrong with that statement because what it says is true. 
The problem isn't with what it says. The problem is what it doesn't say. It doesn't mention the fact that the Bible is also authoritative in every observation that it makes related to history, related to science, related to geography, related to creation, that whenever the Bible makes an observation about anything, it is just as authoritative as the observation it makes about uh, the spiritual life and about salvation. So the Bible is authoritative in every area that it addresses because it has its source in God, and God is omniscient, and therefore he knows all things. Pat? Real quick, what do they mean by faith in that statement? They, they, they would mean that they would apply that to things that are spiritual in terms of salvation or the spiritual life. Nebulous. Yeah, it is. And there's a reason for that is because there's, um, they're, they're not, it's what, again, it goes back to what they're not saying as opposed to what they're, uh, what they're saying. Now, a third principle that has several underlying principles associated with it is that the Bible as a divine book authored by God, has an inherent unity. Now, this is really important because it means that even though Moses wrote the Pentateuch, even though somebody else wrote Samuel, somebody else wrote Chronicles, David wrote some of the Psalms, even though they have different writers for the Gospels, there is an author behind all of them that guarantees an internal unity. That means that even though there are apparent contradictions in the gospel accounts, there has to be an explanation that unifies those apparent contradictions. We may not fully understand it, but we have to assume that that's true so that we can uh, find an answer. Scripture is written by 40 different authors, come from many different backgrounds, education, culture, uh, Egyptian, Persian, Jewish, but they all have this inherent unity. Well, therefore, when there appear to be contradictions or there appears to be a statement that contradicts other statements, then we have to recognize that there is a unity there and there is no contradiction. For example, uh, Acts 2.38 says in the English, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. Now, in the English, it appears that what Peter is saying may substantiate the idea that we have to be baptized in order to have our, baptized by water in order to have our sins forgiven. However, that would contradict numerous other scriptures. If the Bible doesn't contradict itself, then we know that that verse, whatever its meaning, it's not going to contradict other passages of Scripture. Therefore, we must do our homework to determine what is being said here. And when we look at it in terms of the singular and plural, second-person singulars and second-person plurals, it becomes obvious that what Peter is saying is that he's talking to the group as a whole, and he says, repent and be baptized so that every individual of you that does, that, that it repents will have their sins forgiven. The baptism is seen as an individual response after repentance. So it's two different things. It's not 
uh, saying you all repent, and it's not talking about a plural uh, baptism there. So Acts 2.38 must be interpreted in a way that doesn't contradict these other passages. Also, there's, there are those who want to uh, claim that James' discussion of uh, justification by faith around James 2, 20, 21, 22, somewhere in there, is a contradiction of what Paul says in Romans 3. But if on the principle of the unity of Scripture, there's not a contradiction there, so we have to seek a further understanding. We have to do our homework more to determine uh, what that meaning is. This brings up another principle that is inherent to good hermeneutics, and that is that obscure or ambiguous secondary passages must be interpreted in light of clear and primary passages. There are certainly passages that seem to be ambiguous and that could you could take it out of context and say, well, it could mean A or it could mean B. But if B is a con- contradiction with other clear primary statements of Scripture, then we have to exclude B as an option. And so then the meaning would have to be A, otherwise Scripture would contradict itself. Another implication of the unity of Scripture is this means that Scripture can be used to interpret itself. This is also referred to as the analogy of Scripture, the principle of the analogy of Scripture. Scripture sheds light on other Scripture so that if there appears to be a contradiction then or something unclear in one passage, other passages of Scripture then shed light on it and help us to understand it more clearly and more accurately. A fourth aspect of the unity of Scripture is the principle called the progress of revelation, that God gave revelation to Adam, he gave a little more to Noah, he gave a little more to Abraham, he gave more to Moses, and it built on previous uh, previous revelation so that there is this progression of understanding and knowledge. It also means that commands given to some people in some circumstances, for example, commands in the Mosaic law, were going to be were not permanent or eternal, but would be changed and replaced by other commands due to a change of circumstances later on. But remember, God, as the author of the initial commands, has the right to change those commands as time goes by. For example, we have commands to sacrifice in the temple, and these commands are given in the Old Testament, but but they were uh, seen as uh, foreshadowings about the sacrifice of Christ. So once Christ came and paid the penalty for sin, then those previous commands were no longer relevant, and the need to sacrifice uh, was no longer uh, no longer relevant. A fourth principle. And that is the Bible being a divine book has a certain mystery to it. What I mean by that is that we don't, we won't understand every passage, every verse with the same degree of clarity. It takes time to study through passages. Uh, there have been uh, several passages that uh, over the years where I've gained greater insight just through further study. Sometimes I've changed my understanding of the passage in a great way, sometimes in a smaller way. But um, uh, I remember the first time I taught the uh, Epistle of James, 
probably about 30 years ago. I'm glad that no tapes at all survived with that because as time went by, I within a couple of years, I changed many, um, many things in relation to my understanding of James. It was just a the, the way in which we normally grow and the nor- way in which we study, we have uh, we we build on what we learn. So there's a certain amount of of um, uh, things about the scripture that we just can't explain. I know that Jesus walked on the water and that Peter walked on the water, but I can't explain how that happened. I know that with Elisha, an axe head floated, but I can't explain how an axe head, an iron axe head would float. But that's what happened because God is a God who can make those things happen, and so I don't doubt it at all. So those are things that we understand. We may not be able to explain everything that we read in the scriptures, but we do clearly, uh, we can clearly understand that that's what it teaches and that's what it, what it says. Now next time I'm going to come back and we're going to summarize some other principles related to, um, to hermeneutics. And then I want to start working on those exercises in Habakkuk that I've been having you keep reading Habakkuk, keep doing that, keep looking at that, and then we'll come back and work through that some uh, next time. Okay, anybody have any questions? Anybody confused? Anybody lost? Everybody's found. Good. Good. Okay, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, study these things, to reflect upon your word and uh, how to study and uh on our own and read your word for more thorough understanding. And Father, we just pray that as God the Holy Spirit uh, directs us and helps us to understand these things, that we will be responsive to the commands and mandates of Scripture to do what you instruct us to do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.